On this episode, the Smokies 900 miler, being a documentary star, and picking up litter and being a good steward. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to another episode of the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Today we've got Benny Braden, uh, a really avid backpacker, uh, public lands advocate, a founder of Responsible Stewardship, uh, an action-based nonprofit org that's dedicated to restoring public lands and outdoor spaces in communities affected by illegal dumps and litter left behind by people irresponsibly. Um, and a little known fact, perhaps not so little known fact, but uh, he also had set the fastest known time for the Smokies 900 miler. Benny, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Benny, so tell us a little bit about who you are and what makes you tick and what gets you excited. Well, I, f- I feel like that introduction's a little bit of fluff it's hard to live up to that um man what does make me tick um i can't stand litter i know that um you know and you know for a long time i've spent a lot of time in the outdoors um i used to be a first responder uh emt firefighter rescue diver and just doing that kind of kind of work you know you see a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff that you wish you could forget. And uh, after a while, it makes its mark on you. And um, so I started struggling with post-traumatic stress. And a way for me to bleed off some of that, uh, no pun intended, uh, you know, was to be in the outdoors. You know, I grew up outside, you know, I'd Grandparents lived at the very edge of the Cumberland Mountains, and me and my cousins had all these cliffs and all that we used to play on. And uh, so I spent a lot of time there. And so it was just natural to go back into the outdoors for me and uh, seek that healing. And that's how I kind of stumbled into the whole Smokies FKT thing. That wasn't even intentional. Uh, When I was in the middle of the first one, someone asked me if I was doing an FKT, and I had to ask them, what? is that you know i had no that wasn't even on the radar and i was already halfway to break it um so i kind of got serious after that and 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 i broke the record uh the first one was um like 78 days 944 miles in 78 days and it got so much media coverage on tv and everything it was embarrassing because i worked three days a week you know, FKTs, you're out there every day, like busting your butt. So I came back the following fall in the same year and uh, set uh, an actual FKT for the Smokies 900 miler. And that was uh, 924 miles, 43 days. Mm. Now, since then, I have some friends that finally have come along to break part of the record. They broke the, the daily record, which was 27 or 28 days. Uh, but their mileage was 945 or 954 or 56 or something like that. I think it might be 56. Either ways, I still hold the mileage record, but they hold the time record, which is a little, little weird. But um, it, it was good. But that, that took its toll on my body. I, I can't can't do things like that you know done the jmt twice um very instrumental because you know jason's uh documentary there um really played a role in that and actually i've done the jmt twice in the high sierra once so i've been on whitney three different times but um you know it's 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 one of those things that after you do an fkt you know especially two two times your body is just wrecked mm-hmm. it takes a while. And so now being a type two diabetic, uh, it's very tough for me to recover 
when I get injured. I got injured last time I crossed Scotland, and uh, I'm still dealing with those injuries, and that was spring of last year. And so um, don't know how many more hiking days I have. Uh, that's why I've kind of geared in to do more photography and taking care of our public lands more. Well, Benny, your photography is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I jumped on your Instagram feed and was like, whoa, stunning. So it's a, it's a good thing to lean into. So <laughs> that's, that's a good direction to go. Yeah, uh, talking about your FKT just for a second, what maybe elaborate a little bit on what is the Smokies 900 miler? Oh, uh, sorry, my audio cut out there for a minute. Uh, the Smokies 900 miler um, is basically a trail system throughout the park, all the trails in the in the park. And Smokies National Park, Smoky yes, Mountain right, National Park. Yeah. National Park. And it's actually 800 miles of trail. Years ago, it was 900, but the park has since decommissioned a good number of those trails. Uh, so now uh, it's like 801 or something like that. But they still call it the 900 miler because most people are actually going to hike 1,500 miles uh, or more just to be able to do the 900 miles. Because you're having to backtrack. And right, going out and back and all of that. Right, yeah. Yeah. And they don't connect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very tough to connect them. And actually how I, you know, I did my first 900. I used a book by Liz Etnire that was on day hiking. So I just adapted it to through hiking because that's what I like to do. So I put a bunch of the trails together and trimmed it down from 1,010 uh, or 1,050, what that book is based on, to 1,000 or 944. Then I went back the second time took that and I had a friend that had a computer software system that actually you could um, overlap it, you know, with like how uh, UPS uses the same system, mapping system to do the routes. So it told me where I was hiking too much and going, going too, many, too many times. So I was able to trim down my map based on technology. <laughs> that's cool yeah <laughs> so now now you say you grew up near near the cumberland right uh now yep. and you were outdoors when you were younger did was hiking a thing or was it more just like going and playing outside and that you know hiking more of a later thing or were you actually hiking these trails when you were a kid uh you know we would cut in little trails going to our different like cliff faces and all that around my grandparents property is at the very edge of the cumberland mountains so when i say the edge mm -hmm. You could look across the East Tennessee Valley and see the Appalachians, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, on a low humidity day, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how edge it was. And there's all these little rock outcrops on cliff faces. So as kids, we weren't really that, um, I don't know what, what word I'm kind of looking for, but we didn't have that big of a vocabulary, so every spot was like lookout one, lookout two, lookout three. <laughs> yeah. Everything was lookout, but uh, we had all these cool little trails going to different little rock outcrops that you could look across the valley. But I enjoyed doing that, you know, growing up. We spent a lot of time outdoors. You know, I grew up in the air where there was no PlayStation or nothing, and so we were always out playing, you know, from daylight to dark during the summertime. Uh, I did start hiking whenever I was in high school. Um, I spent my spring break in uh, the Big South Fork uh, Recreation National Recreation Area, uh, where everybody else went to Panama, and uh, so I was out hiking, <laughs> and and uh, everybody else was out, you know, going to the beach. Panama, the country, or was it Panama? There's like Panama Beach, right, in Florida? Oh, Panama City Beach, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> they like going to Panama City Beach because. Yeah. It's a big party atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, notorious, I guess, is a better word than famous for that spring break. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. Probably the best words for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what was your first through hike? When, when did you, how did you first start through hiking? And when, when was your first, like, long hike? You know, my first through hike, honestly, was the FKT and the Smokies. Mm -hmm. Um. Until then, I was section hiking, you know, I section hiking the AT, uh, section hiking Cumberland Trail. Um, 
But it was like the least little thing that would go wrong. I would just pack it up and go to the house. I was like, yeah, I'm going home. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. And uh, it wasn't until I experienced, you know, doing the FKT where you don't have an option. You yeah. have to, no matter what the weather is, that I really got that taste for type two fun. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I felt like it was punishment. Like, I needed to punish myself, so this is how I was going to do it. And uh, it was like I was picking my poison, I guess you could say. But, um, yeah, that was really, what was it? That changed my whole mindset, my thinking of whenever I'm on a trail. You know, then it was like, no, I want to see this through. You know, I want to go to the end. So now I started, then I started picking different trails and, um, you know, doing, you know, the Foothills Trail art lobe, some of the smaller ones, you know, stair stepping up into the, into the bigger ones. And then, you know, obviously the John Muir trail and Benton McCod trail and, and all those others that, you know, that are out there. Um, I prefer anything around 300 miles mm-hmm. or less because it's just enough time away since I have my own business. It's tough to get away very, very long. Uh, I have taken summers off and, and uh, just hiked before when we did Highline. I did uh, the Long Trail, then I did the Benton Mackay, and then the, you went to Highline Trail. And um, so I was gone. I, I never went home, and I was only home for a couple of days just between the Long Trail and, ben, and uh, John Muir. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that, that was different. That's the first time I'd done that, and I really enjoyed it. Um, you have to work very hard whenever you're self-employed. You have to work very hard to fill in those blanks, you know, that yeah. that, that dead time. But it, it was good for me here. It was really good for me. Yeah. So, and why you just because, you know, and, and that's kind of how I know you at least, why don't you talk a little bit about the film and the, the Highline Trail and, you know, the, the uh, previous guest, Chris Mead, made a film with Benny. Benny was one of the subjects of it, a documentary on hiking the United Uinta you went to him. I'm saying that right, right? You went to Highline yep. Trail in Utah. Yeah. You want to? How did that? How did that all come? How did you meet Chris? How did that film come to be? How did you end up becoming a, a movie star? It's kind of kind of a weird thing. Okay, of course, Matt. Uh, Matt Favaro is my best friend, and um, so they were in the works of doing this film called Highline, and they had originally had scripted somebody else in there and. Uh, something happened that person didn't want to do it or couldn't do it or something. So they reached out to me, see if I would want to do it because they were sharing stories. And Chris found out about my personal story of being a first responder and struggling with, with PTS, uh, post-traumatic stress. And um, so I was like, I think, I think we could tell your story in a, in a good way um, that might help some people. So I was open for it. You know, at the time I had a you know very small YouTube channel so i was used to doing videos and used to doing tv interviews and stuff like that so i was used to being in front of the camera but not anything quite like this Uh, um, it was very different um i tell people i feel like a goober um in the film just i I feel goofy Um, why is that (laughs) i don't know i just watched the film everyone you know everyone once in a while i watch the film now uh, and I just kind of cringe, you know, just different things that I might say or, or whatever. It's like, you know, just like with TV inter- interviews, whenever they edit the, the footage, they can either make you look like a genius, like this amazing person, or they can make you look like someone that doesn't know very much. And, and Chris did a great job editing and, and, and everybody involved with that whole process. I just felt like, I just felt like, I could have said things a little better, you know, maybe been more of a Tom Cruise or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I felt like a Barney Five, you know, there, but, um, but it was a lot of fun to make. It was challenging to make because obviously we were going very slow because we would have to stop and shoot something, do it over and over and over. And then, um, if that wasn't bad enough, um, sorry, my blue coast monitor is going off. Can you still hear me? Yeah. 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 Uh, um, but yeah, you know, it was one of those things that every time you'd wake up, 
Chris would, you'd wake up with the camera in your face and be like, you know, do a highlight or, you know, what's expected for the day. Uh, or maybe at the end of the day, he'd throw a camera in your face or whatever. But uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. And unfortunately, Gordy had to drop out. Mm-hmm. He got like pretty bad. And um, so they handed me a camera you know, you know, come, which this is a bigger camera, but they handed me a camera and said, here you go, take some pictures. And I'm like, I don't know. I've never even used a camera like this before. You know, I was used to using small cameras mm-hmm. at that moment. So I shot everything on the auto, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I shot so much stuff and, and a lot of the stuff they used in the film. And Chris has said many times that if it wasn't for me shooting, he wouldn't have had the extra B-roll or the extra, you know, photos to use to animate to um, to help fill in some of the things they needed for the film. And even some of the GoPro. I only had like a little GoPro session or something like that. Because mm-hmm. my actual phone, I had dropped it on the JMT and just destroyed it mm-hmm. on that granite. So I was using like a little bitty like session. And especially the storm on the side of Lighty Peak. And uh, I just knew we were going to die there. I mean, I was convinced <laughs> we were about to die. Because lightning was hitting within like 30, 40, 50 yards of us. Mm-hmm. And Joe, Joe's like, I guess we just keep going. Everybody else ran down the hill, but me, Matt, and Joe were still up there. And I figured, well, Joe's worth a lot of money. If something happens and we go missing, they are definitely looking for him. So. <laughs> My body needs to be laying somewhere near Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what when I smart. Turned, yeah. Yeah. Whenever I turned that camera around, I I just knew I felt like the moment was about to happen. And I was at peace with that. I mean yeah. you, you can't imagine you know you know, going out there, let's say if something happened and you did get hurt or die out there, it's much better than laying in the bed and suffering. Well, and um, if he's a slower yeah. runner than you, and you, you know, the, you, you know, you could outrun him if the bear was chasing you. That's yeah, the perfect yeah, hiking partner, yeah. right? They'll bring in the helicopters for him if you need him. But yeah. you know, if it's a bear situation, then he's the one instead of you. So that's like the perfect yeah. hiking partner. Oh, most definitely, most definitely. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, as soon as I turned that camera around, you know, that lightning boat struck right behind us, and it looks like it tapped me in the head because I kind of ducked with it. Um. Some of my favorite footage I've ever shot, and it was stupid, you know. <laughs> so what was that? Was that an A7 A7R4? What was that you just held up? Yeah, yeah. This is actually the new A7 Nice, great camera. Yeah, yeah. yeah I got in the the new uh, Tamron 35 to 150. Nice. So I got it. Stupid heavy. This whole camera with the lens. This combination is like four pounds yeah uh, ridiculous not something i would carry hiking um i'm actually going to carry the body to scotland in a few weeks right and carry like a sony 35 and a sony 8085 but i use this for uh like concerts when i'm mm-hmm. shooting concerts. yeah whenever i'm shooting rescue and fire calls so i, I do that for the local rescue squad in the fire department I used to be members of. I no longer run calls to do like medical emergency stuff, blood and gut stuff, but I do volunteer my lens for them. So mm-hmm. this way they can use it for training footage or mm-hmm. promoting people need to, to know they're still out there doing stuff in the community. Yeah. Yeah. What they're doing. I yeah. say, I love the Tamron um, 17 to, uh, was it 17 to 20? Is it? 28 yeah that yep. one just yep. because it's so small and light that's like what i the, i carry that with my a7r4 backpacking now because i can fit it in this tiny little thing and it weighs nothing yeah yeah I have, i'll lug a lot more on other trips but like for backpacking now i'm just like you know yeah. what i you know I'll, I'll crop and post if i have to you know <laughs> yeah. yeah i actually carried that one um i used that one for Holland. yeah um i don't i, I think it was like I forget the camera body I used on that because it was Gordy's, so they just hand it to me. So I think it was like a A7R2 or something mm-hmm. like that. 
Yeah. I know uh, we were in the process of uh, shooting another documentary with Chris up in Alaska. And so we went up and we were going to do the same thing up there. And we were using his, uh, um, the R2 yeah. for, for him up there and using the 17 to 28 and in a few other lenses uh, that I was carrying. It, it's crazy. I was carrying two big cameras and lenses. So that that was no fun, but <laughs> no, it adds it, up. <laughs> it, it, on uh, the summer solstice, and you're wearing sunglasses at midnight. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, so, so Benny, talking uh, about your backpacking adventures, what are like one or two or three of your top adventures that you've had? Um, man. Well, number one, the JMT and the Sierra. There's something about the Sierra that are very special. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to be able to do the JMT twice. Uh, the second time I did it, um, I, I did it with another friend and, you know, she hadn't, she wasn't used to, to, that's her first time out in the Sierra. And so we didn't hike together a lot cause I hike at different speed. And I remember leaving um, MTR. Mm -hmm. Near Trail yep. Ranch. Yep. Yep. Going up the, going up, back yeah. up. And I remember going up it, and it, you know, you're just exposed to some, you know, mean sun. And I did it in August, you know, so yep. mosquitoes weren't too bad. Is like perfect. But I remember climbing it, thinking this is worse than I remember. Like you know, whenever you have a such a traumatic experience that your brain will clip out sections of time. Put it away in the fall so it doesn't bother you anymore. <laughs> Whenever I was hiking, I felt like, was this that traumatizing? Did I forget this? Because it was, it was so bad. I was like, good night. And there's such, it was a drought that year too. Yeah. And, uh, so we're running low on water, and I'm just thinking, really questioning my life decisions of doing that section again. <laughs> but plus, I packed in some beers too. I'd ship myself some beers. Yeah. I had a beer, shared a beer, and I was taking a few beers up. Um, because whenever I would do a pass, I would chug a beer. <laughs> uh, how I did it, the first time I did, I took a Ziploc, would pick up a handful of snow, throw a can of beer in it. You know, within a mile of the pass, by the time you get up there, the humidity is so low that it kills that beer like super fast. And it'd be like having beer on ice. <laughs> and I remember. Getting to uh, one of the passes the first year I did it. Um, Pichu, Pikachu, Pincho. Pincho. Yeah. Up to Pincho Pass, chugged me a beer, and it was so cold it was giving me brain freeze. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've heard don't drink alcohol at elevation because it, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hasn't having, stopped me, but yeah, I have heard it. Having, uh, having like three or four beers. Uh, so I remember chugging that. Cause I chug them. I don't like sip them. I chugged it and then, uh, got really obnoxious with my GoPro belching into it and all that. <laughs> this part, I was by myself then. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, I remember walking down that on the other side of the pass thinking, I can feel this beer. It's like <laughs> beer at night, you know, good thing. I didn't drink too. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the JMT is just, Amazing, you know. The last time I did it, I took my ten car fishing rod and caught like forty trout. Didn't anticipate wow. catching any fish, to be honest. So I didn't bring anything to like clean them or cook them. So all of it was catch and release. Um, but it was still so much fun just being at the lakes. Um, and and I was carrying my A sixty four hundred, and um, and uh, I think the eleven to twenty probably got some of my most favorite images from from that trip mm -hmm. that one is good um my trip um i would say scotland uh is a good trip uh tgo where you're hiking coast to coast across scotland mm -hmm. um those are a lot of fun you have to like plan your routes and and do all that you meet a lot of a lot of good other hikers, a lot of good people from around the world. What, what, what's that called again? Could you? Ex I, the Great Out, yeah, the Great Outdoor Challenge. 
Okay. Um, it is, um, it's one of those things where you have to submit your route and they vet it, make sure you're not going anywhere where you're going to kill yourself. Uh, cause weather's different up there. Uh, mm-hmm. even though it's only 4,600 feet, maybe your highest point, just where it is in latitude, uh, the jet stream flows through there and it's just, the weather's just hellacious. Um, you know, last time we did that, uh, last year, uh, I got injured and, and had to drop out, uh, just cause the weather was the worst weather they'd ever had. They had the most rescues, the most people drop out. Even one of the planners of the event had to drop out due to injury. So I didn't feel that, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was being weak, but, uh, I remember crossing one path and you're just leaning into the wind, just hoping you don't get knocked down. Cause it was absolutely brutal mm-hmm. um the wind gusts we were dealing with because there's not not that many trees so there's nothing to slow it down um but it was a good trip we had a great time um after i got hurt i just kind of converted it to a photography trip so um we spent a few extra days in edinburgh on the way out and man i, I got once again some of my most favorite pictures out of edinburgh mm-hmm. um and then I guess the last one was over in Big Bear. Um, I participated in a hiking event with uh, Highlander Adventure of a Lifetime. Mm-hmm. They do like these big group hikes and stuff like that. And it was more of a social event than it was a hiking event. You just have to be hiking while you're socializing. Uh, but you met so many like-minded people. And you got to camp in these big open areas with all these other people and you share it, it was just that was really cool um definitely definitely a different thing than what you would think of whenever you're hiking the sierra definitely nothing like that mm-hmm. um a lot of old road beds and stuff like that through national forest where you can walk side by side with someone and have these great conversations um and meet people from all around the world so that was pretty pretty cool now, was your your first time doing the JMT, was that the first time you hiked in the Sierra, or had you been there before? Nope. First time. Wow. Well, that, yeah. that must have been quite a shot coming from, like, East Coast hiking, you know, which is not it's not challenging, but, you know, all of a sudden you're up at 10,000 feet, right? And you're like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was challenging in a way uh, for the breathing. You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, I mean, we got the Smokies here that's, like, you know, 6,000 feet, but it's nothing like what you guys have out there so and plus our air is a lot thicker here too really humid so there i remember leaving um horseshoe meadow and hiking on that flat straightaway because that year we did um uh new army pass uh i left horseshoe meadow so we're on that flat straightaway trail that's going to cottonwood lakes and i'm sitting there talking into the gopro telling about my you know what we're about to do and within a hundred yards, I was out of breath. And I was like, hey, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> so, but man, that it is, it is an adjustment, but you know, within a few days, you're good. I didn't, you know, then I wasn't doing any like elevation, you know, like uh, any tablets or anything like that to, to adjust. I just drank plenty of water mm-hmm. and, uh, and all good, you know. Yeah. Did you do Langley when you when you went out over New Army, or I, didn't? No, you I just, did. just went over. Just went over Cottonwood Pass and then the JMT that way. Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. And yeah. You went northbound, huh? So your first your first attempt was northbound. So that's a yeah. that's a challenge. Yeah. Both times I've gone okay. northbound just because it's easier to get the permit. Yeah. That's yeah. It yeah. is tough. Yeah. The last time I got permits, um, it, it was so easy. I literally woke up ten minutes before. Uh, got on the computer to apply for the permit Mm -hmm. and within two minutes or a minute I had it already saved and paid for you know um basically that old system I don't know how it is now but you go in select your entry point exit point date entered date exit and throw in a couple of locations prior you know hit number of permits all that and pay for it 
and go back in and fill in your itinerary uh, the way you used to be able to do it. I don't know if you can do it now, but uh, that really made it super easy because then later I could go back in and really fine tune my itinerary and, um, you know, give, give the authorities, you know, a better idea of where I was going to be when I was going to be. Yeah, I wonder why it's so hard to get southbound permits, but I can't think of any. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's um, no, no good reason. No good reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how many days did you uh, were your your two JMT treks, Benny? Uh, around nineteen days. 19. Oh yeah, so you're moving pretty good. Actually, you're doing some pretty good mileage. Yeah, we're we were moving pretty good. Um, the the last, I like, I like getting into um, Yosemite. Uh, like the day before uh, Labor Day mm-hmm. or the day after Labor Day. Because it's like two days after that, that's the day that last Yards bus leaves Yosemite. Yeah. So you, you better be on that one. <laughs> uh, if you want to go back to Mammoth. But, um, but yeah, no, it's uh, – and Yosemite is just – I want to go back just to do a photography trip in Yosemite. It's just – you know, that area is just a photographer's heaven, you yeah, know. Sure is. So, Benny, why don't you, so why don't we um, start, uh, how did your whole sort of campaign, anti-littering campaign and all of that get started? What got you started in it? And, and tell us a little bit more about it. You, you know, um, I was on a trip back before COVID, February of 2020. That's how just before COVID it was. Uh, in fact, on the way back from London, we were asked if we had been to China. That's how close we got mm-hmm. to being stuck in Europe, but uh, or in the UK. But anyways, um, we did a trip in Turkey, did 90 miles along the coast of the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. And we kept running into all these piles of trash along the coastline. And then we would track across through these different villages, you know, making our way to Istanbul, but just outside Istanbul, we were hitting all these incredible sunsets, just so orange, you know, probably because there's so much pollutants in the air, but it was so beautiful, but I couldn't line up a single shot without catching litter in it. It was everywhere. And even at that, it was like, eh, it's here. It's not over there. Uh, so I get back home and essentially that following fall, uh, when COVID's in full swing, um, I go to do a TV interview in Asheville, North Carolina. And on my way back, I stop at Max Patch, a location where the Appalachian Trail goes across this grassy bog. And I figured, eh, I'll just stay here, you know. So I camped off to the side, uh, didn't camp on the bog. And, but this long line of people just kept walking by, these college kids, all day. And I just figured school trip, whatever. Um, but finally, you know, I took a midday nap, woke up, walked around my tent area and found this huge pile of trash not far from my tent and thought, this ain't normal, you know? So I, I did a little story about it and some friends were like, hey, we're coming, we'll haul that off. So we got that pile taken care of. And then all night long, all you hear is noise from up top. All those kids were still up there. And they were partying. It was the University of Tennessee having a frat party. And because uh, they couldn't do it on campus anymore. So they had to find an alternate location. And um, so it was one of those situations. Uh, the next morning, I did a loop around, um, you know, the bald and hauled off a truckload of trash. Mm. And so I came back the following week. And I was running into this situation week after week. So every week I would haul off a truckload of, of trash, abandoned camping tents, sleeping bags, you know, coolers, you know, TP, everything. It was just, it was bad. And I started making a little bit of noise about it on social media and, you know, putting this in front of, you know, local news outlets, trying to bring awareness to, to the problem. Um, and then I got connected with Save Our Smokies, but I did that for nine weeks mm-hmm. and uh, until it got into late fall and then it started getting cold and college kids don't like cold. 
So they stopped. So you were going, you were going back to Max Patch every weekend for every nine week. weeks. Yeah, and that's two and a half hour drive from my house. Uh, I would spend three to four hours cleaning it, and then that two and a half hour drive back, and then unloading the trash. In any gear that was salvageable, I would clean it and donate it to Gear Forward, a nonprofit that. Uh, does gear donations and they give that to like Boy Scout troops and church groups, you know, getting kids out in the outdoors. Uh, so we were able to, to donate a little bit of it, but most often the gear was destroyed because most of the kids don't know how to set Because they would stop at Walmart, buy the first thing they could buy, never set up a tent before, so they'd destroy it and all that. So it, it was. It was a mess, but we got connected with Save Our Smokies right after that. Um, and they were just starting on the ground. And so I became the vice president and, um, you know, help, helped out with that. Still help out with that organization. I'm still vice president, still do still do work there. And uh, we're getting ready to do our largest cleanup of the year in the Smokies on Earth Day. Um, but after you know, kind of a year of doing that. And actually, if you look at the logo of Save Our Smokies on the inside of it, it says Responsible Stewardship because uh, I designed the logo. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something with that term. I just didn't know what. And uh, so last year, um, I finally made that decision to go ahead and turn it into a nonprofit. And that's what we did. And we've hit the ground running ever since. And we've taken basically what we were doing in the Smokies and gone worldwide with it mm-hmm. um we have ambassadors in the uk getting ready to have one in croatia uh and we have representatives over in taiwan and just all across the united states um to the point that so far this year we've removed sixty-eight thousand pounds yes. we're not a q1 yet yeah and we hold a large lake cleanup here locally um got three different counties surrounding this one lake so we got nine different or eight different check-in locations so we're doing that this weekend then the following weekend we're doing the save our Smokies spring clean clean up in the smokies multiple organizations multiple businesses and doing the whole part that encompasses two different states so last year we had 200 volunteers and we picked up 4600 pounds in three hours so we expect to do that again that's fantastic Mm -hmm. yeah and then this weekend uh on the lake we'll probably pick up 40 4 to 5 pounds of of trash this week yeah so responsible stewardship you say you've got ambassadors you know kind of around the world now internationally how does it work as far as like if somebody wants to get involved and and you know organize a, a cleanup what how does that work well, if you want to become an ambassador, you can apply on our website, responsiblestewardship.org. There's a application process. You can do that. And um, But if you just want to do something in your community, mm-hmm. like you don't have to be an ambassador to do that. You can do your own thing. Uh, we have uh, an edu- I think one thing on there on our website, one page is um, plan your own zero waste cleanup. And what we mean by that is, you know, maybe use dog food bags or barley bags from a local brewery that's donated to you. Maybe use some dipped gloves, you know, and uh, basically go out. You pick up the litter, put it in the barley bags, find you a dumpster, put it in there. You've added zero waste. You rip out the bag, use it again, wash the gloves, use those again. Keeps less out of the landfills. And, um, you know, it helps, you know, breweries and shelters out that are donating the bags because they're not having to put those in their dumpster. Therefore, they don't have that many, you know, disposal feeds they've got to pay for. But there's a page on there that tells you how to communicate with your local governments, local property owners, business owners to help organize your own event in your area. Uh, You can reach out to us. We'll help you in that process of organizing your event um because that's what we're here for you know we're here to help you make your community a better place to live or 
your local outdoor space a better place to recreate. And if everybody's taking care of their own little places, then every every place in general is going to be better. And other people are going to see you do it. So they're going to want to join. And then they're going to want to do their own thing, too. So it almost creates like a kudzu effect. You know, we, we have kudzu here in the South. So it, like, grows out like rapid pace, you know. Uh, so basically, that's what, what kind of effect we're seeing with what we're doing Um especially here we obviously have a big presence in tennessee and have a great working relationship you know with with our state park system here in tennessee with a couple of national parks that are here in in our state and quite a few different local governments including state government we do a lot of stuff with um obviously the state tennessee park system and the tennessee department of uh, agriculture and helping them remove different illegal dump sites that they find on 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 their property because we can show up, we can remove a dump site with volunteers. Have you gotten a crew of uh, University of Ten- Tennessee students and frat boys to come support your project? We need to. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> I, I Community service. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think you should, it's where it all was inspired. I think you should reach out to the yeah. University of Tennessee and get those kids, you know. That's a good idea. I like that idea. You know, obviously being a nonprofit, we can sign off on their Tennessee promise hours, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, especially like high school kids. If they get, um, I think, two years free college or something of that nature, they got to do so many hours of community service to help kind of earn that. Um, So we can sign off on those. We we actually do a lot of those. We have a lot of kids come through our program, which is really cool because you get a chance to educate the next generation. Uh, which is something that we've not done a really good job of as my generation hasn't done a good job of uh, passing on what we know. Um, but yeah, it's uh, we definitely, we would love to, to do something with them. I know Tennessee river lines are kind of uh, associated with the university of Tennessee. We do a few projects with them. And they're working, they do most of their stuff along the Tennessee River, you know, making a, a paddable trail, you know, where they paddle and stuff like that. So we help keep part of the Tennessee River clean. And and uh, so we do a lot of a lot of cleanups on, on the lake. Um, but, yeah, I like that idea. Every, <laughs> and there's 11 different colleges that, that did that, the Barrel Max Patch. Because along with the U.S. National Forest Service over in Pisgah, we track. Everybody that was using the hashtag uh, Max Patch during that time. Oh, and, wow. And would track what colleges they were. And you see like a bunch of people using that from certain college. There's a good chance, you know, on a certain date, they were all there. And then if you look at the pictures and re- do your research enough, you can see that they were all there partying. So it, it was easy to track. But um, <laughs> Tennessee started it, though. So. <laughs> I, I, I have this sort of mixed feeling of admiration and disgust, like admiration for you for doing all this work <laughs> combined with disgust that it's like 40,000 pounds of litter that you're removing from like, yeah. like, yeah. you know, what's supposed to be a wilderness or like a, you know, a hot place for yeah. nature where people are supposed to like, like the foot, the, just the notion that it's that much. I mean, that's just shocking yeah. and, and just disgusting. I mean, you know, I guess it, it's preaching to the choir on this podcast, but it's just, it's just, you know, how does that, how do, like, how does anyone think that that's okay? I just don't understand, you know, the, the mindset of people that think it's okay to just leave their trash out in these places. You know, it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, it's one of those, I mean, last year, last year was our first official year. You know, um, we weren't that last year we removed 42,000 pounds for the whole year. Mm-hmm. This year we've removed sixty-eight thousand. Yeah, so, so we're at one hundred and ten thousand since we started. Hmm. That's insane. That is a That's lot. A, yeah, that much out there, and there's still so much. We just, just, you know, I go around in my own county. You know, we have ambassadors, we have team leaders spread out all over the place, and you know, they're charged with do something in your local area, and so. Just because I'm the founder and president doesn't mean I get to like sit back and organize and pull all the strings. You know, I do that, you know, but I'm also cleaning up my area too. That's a priority for me. 
And so my county, which is Roan County, um, I work really hard at, you know, our county government works with us really good. Um, we just removed 604 tires off of a single property hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. And the county was like, how many dumpsters do you need? And they delivered us the dumpster. We filled it up. They hauled it off. They took care of the disposal fee for the tires and stuff. Because it's very expensive to dispose of tires in Tennessee. Yeah. And our county just raised the price of disposing of a mattress from $5 to $25. So guess what we found the other day? Mattresses. Yeah, yeah. Six mattresses. And yeah. so I marked it. I have a, like a Google map file on my phone and I marked it. Every time we come up to a dump site, we mark it, send it to our county, let them know about it. They pass it on to DOT if it's DOT property. Uh, but, you know, we found one site that was a quarter mile long, you know, that had Ooh. tires, that had mattresses, that had roofing materials. I mean, we removed a hundred and something tires off of it, and it still has tires on it. That's kind of getting into that time of season where messing around with dump sites is we kind of need to back off on that because of snakes and yeah. things are starting to move around a little bit. So. Uh, this summertime, we'll focus on festivals, and we do, like, outreach. But at the last day of each festival, we'll do, like, a group, like a community cleanup to help remove the negative impact that a festival can have on a community. So we do that a lot in summertime. And I'll spend a lot of time on the lake just floating and probably having a beer, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have never been to Burning Man, okay, talking about festivals, yeah, but like I've never been to Burning Man, but I've heard or read somewhere that like one of their policies is that everybody's got to like clean up the place meticulously, you know, at leave like really, truly leave no trace that, you know, yeah. when, they're, when they're gone. And uh, it'd be interesting to see, you know, that applied to other, you know, the the myriad of little smaller, you know, local regional festivals all around the country throughout the throughout the year. Yeah, the tough thing about like community festivals, you know, stuff like that, is the people that are coming to to view all the arts and crafts and stuff like that. It's people that are like, you know, throwing the litter down, or they open up their car door and something blows out or whatever. Those are tough to do, and typically that doesn't do a whole lot. We don't get much litter from that. Uh, what we typically will do, we'll get with the festival. Um, people and uh, we'll plan on doing like a, a big community cleanup of a local dump site like we did one in a little bitty tiny Cumberland Gap and uh, in the neighboring town of Middlesbrough, Kentucky bordering the Cumberland Gap National Park there's a creek and the locals in, uh, in on the Kentucky side were throwing shopping carts into the creek so we removed 30-something shopping, shopping carts out of the creek. In, a, in addition to other trash, we removed 3,000 pounds in three hours. Hmm. And some of these carts were buried so deep into the sill, only the tires were sticking up because they were upside down. So I had to use a winch on a, on the vehicle to rip those things out of the, out of the you know, the out of the creek. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so you end up with crazy stuff like that. You know, here... Uh, you know, a lot of stuff like that's generational. Mm. You know, um, it's what their grandparents did, what their what their parents did. So that's what they do. They just we throw stuff like over the cliff or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And um, we got to break that. You know, my grandparents threw stuff over their cliff. I remember going through some of that stuff that had been there for a decade or two, several decades. Whenever I was a kid, I'm finding all these old cola bottles really antique cola bottles and at the time we could take them in and cash them in for like five cents and i would go get me some bubble gum money <laughs> those bottles are probably worth way more than bug, bubble gum money <laughs> i still had them but i'm you know that was you know i was able to break free from that you know and, and it's a it's obviously a, a a learned behavior so i think I think we can still do it. And, and there's promising that uh, we can create a curriculum that can be in the schools here locally 
So we're working with local the local government on doing that for next year. I'm hoping, and we'll see what that what that turns up. But in the meantime, we just encourage people to go out and make a positive impact. Do more than just leave no trace. I mean, if everybody is leaving no trace, we wouldn't be here talking right now. Well, we would. We'd we would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it would just be the hiking stuff, though. There wouldn't there wouldn't be you know we wouldn't have to be talking about you know t- you know Clean several ups, four yeah. or five tons worth of garbage. Yeah. That you're you're picking up uh, you know out of creeks yeah. and you know and so we that tell kind of stuff. we tell folks you have three options whenever you go into the outdoors. Mm-hmm. One, you can make a negative impact. You know you can ex- you know you can display negative behavior. You can leave a negative impact, or you can leave no trace and leave a neutral impact, meaning you don't take anything with you other than what you took in, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what they educate. You stay on your path, you stay on your trail, you camp in hard places, you dispose of your waste properly, or you can make the third, third decision, exercise responsible stewardship, exercise the ethics of responsible stewardship, and that's making a positive impact. And that's picking up something that doesn't belong to you, that someone else left behind so you remove that negative impact that the first person left that way the person behind you doesn't have to experience that because that might be their very first experience into the outdoors and they might need those outdoors like i used to need those outdoors and their life might depend on it if you don't feel welcome if it's not clean if it's not inviting you're not going to go back so that that's our driving that's my driving course because I know how important it was to me to be out there. And I want to remove any negative impact so that the next person who needs the outdoors can have an incredible experience and want to go back for more healing. That's mm-hmm. that's my goal at the end of the day. We can talk for hours, but when we sum it up like, like a couple of lines, that's it. You know, I want to make sure that the next person feels invited out there, feels comfortable, and has a great experience. And you know, I'm doing my part to pay it, pay it back. I guess you could say. Well, you you left us all silent, Benny. So <laughs> yeah. I do that. I do that a lot. Yeah, um, yeah it's just, you know, it's one of those things that for a long time, and I, and I feel like this way about society, for a long time, I was litter blind. I could drive up and down the road and litter wouldn't phase me a bit. I'd just hammer down and keep going. Now, I can tell you where every piece of litter is on my highway because I see it. Mm-hmm. I see every single thing. I know where the dump sites are. I can't drive by any site that I know that gets dumped on without turning my head and looking as I'm dropping by to see if anyone's dropped anymore. Um, my goal is to encourage society to become litter conscious and think about what we do with our waste. Because a lot of times here in the South, you know, we have a bunch of good old boys. So we just throw our stuff in the back of the pickup truck. We drive on down the road. Most of that stuff's pretty light that we throw in the back of the truck and the wind's gonna blow it out. And when we get to our destination, we get out and look, it's not in the back of your truck anymore. You're like, oh, well, that's blowing out onto the highway. That's still littering. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, when you put something in the back of your truck and it's lightweight, it's going to blow out. And to me, I'm a bit extreme. I'm as I, I just turned 50. So the older I get, I become more curmudgeon, you know, <laughs> I, I just telling people get off my lawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, oh man, you know, like get off my lawn. Don't, don't be littering. And, uh, I'm telling people, you know, I feel like if you throw it in the back of your truck, you know, you know, it's going to blow out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to blow out. That's intentional littering. I know society doesn't see it as that. And maybe the law doesn't see it as that. But that is, is exactly what's happening. And that's I guess that's a, a That's my extreme side. But um, I just feel like, hey, you know, secure your load. If you put it in the back of your truck, make sure there's no way for it to blow out. You know, lay something heavy on it or whatever. And then when you get to your destination, throw it away. Uh, properly dispose of your waste. And if everybody did that, you know, think about how beautiful our outdoor spaces would be. Our trailheads. Think about how beautiful our trailheads would be or, or some of our campsites that we go into this beautiful campsite and you got all this these beautiful views and this 
clean flowing water running by it. You know, think about that. You know, in the Smokies, the most visited national park in the United States, mm-hmm. Great Smoky Mountain National Park, sees like 14, 15 million people, something like that. Probably more now. It's graffitied so bad. We can't even stay in front of it. We can remove graffiti from one site within a month. It's back worse than before. And people are very brazen about doing it. They'll video themselves doing it and post it on social media saying, hey, we left our mark on the Smokies. Spray painting and writing on infrastructure. Or they'll throw garbage and or even locals will come in to dump their washers and dryers and water heaters and all that. You know, our first year of Save Our Smokies, we removed 10,000 pounds just inside the national park. And we didn't even get to hit all the roads because we had to keep going back. It's sad. I, I tell people, where you have people, you have trash, right? Where people are, trash is too. If the Smokies is the most visited national park, I can argue that it's also the most trashed national park. And as someone that's been in there that has a very close ties to the park, obviously with my history, I've seen a lot of trash in that park. We've removed a lot of crazy stuff out of that park. It's important to take care of what we have. You only have nice things by keeping them nice. And it could be just a little, it could be a little litter cleanup. It could be helping a neighbor out with their yard. Maybe they're having trouble mowing it. Maybe, um, maybe an elderly person down the road um, could use some help around their place, help them out. You know, stewardship is more than about picking up litter. Sometimes it's just being kind and being nice to the people around you. And maybe encouraging people to maybe, hey, come out and do a hike with us. You know, do a short hike. And uh, it might be their first experience to the outdoors. And if those outdoors are pristine and beautiful, they're going to want to come back. And you can play a very important role in starting that. And um, just go out and be a good steward. To learn more, you can go to responsiblestewardship.org. And we have a lot of different um, uh, resources there to help you make a positive impact in your community. You can also uh, get connected with us and we can get you um, set up to do some stuff. Um, if you want to you know, become a ambassador or maybe eventually a team leader, we can, we can help with that. Or if you just want to donate to support what we're doing, uh, you can donate there as well. Responsible Stewardship is a 100% all-volunteer organization. I don't get paid for a single penny. I don't even get reimbursement for my fuel. That's my donation, into what, my investment into what I'm doing. So our goal is to use all of our donations to maximize our impact in the outdoors. That's what you're entrusting us with. So, you know, obviously we have website things like that to take care of, but and that's why we use donated bags, like barley bags. So we're not having to buy trash bags. You know, we buy these, you know, the reusable gloves and then grabbers for people that want to use grabbers. And outside that, that's the equipment that we use. We want to keep this as minimal and maximize that donation to everything that we can use it for. So that's why we choose to stay all volunteer. And, um, that's great. Yeah, it's all good. Well, Benny, this has been really fun. Yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. great talking oh, with you. Yeah, yeah, it's always fun. Yeah. And Benny, thank you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you yeah, for all honestly. the work that you're doing. Yeah, and all yeah, the thank you. Your stewardship, you know, obviously, it's yeah. people that enjoy the outdoors. It's people like you that make you. it clean and better for for us. And you know, yeah. So thanks, yeah. thanks for what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm invested. Yeah, we're all invested, right? Because yeah. we enjoy the outdoors and. Our parks are underfunded, under budget, you know, or, or understaffed, and um, they don't have they don't have the people to help take care of it. So, as an outdoorsman, a hiker, we all we have to kind of be like the rangers out there. We have to help the parks out by picking up the you know what we see. Once you see it, it becomes your responsibility. Mm-hmm. So you're doing nothing but helping yourself whenever. When you're helping, you know, whenever you're picking up litter, you're helping yourself to enjoy the park, obviously, but you're helping the people behind you and you're helping the park. It's, it's nothing but positive impact at that point. There's nothing negative about that. 
Yep. Just wash your hands afterwards. <laughs> and we and we all we all have that responsibility. So yeah. Yeah. we all have that responsibility. We should all be doing that. Yeah. Thank awesome. You. Thanks, Benny. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash ATAP. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out our show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we talk to thru-hiker Carol Coyne. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>